the college football season started last week in full, and my alma mater, Florida State, lost a nail-biter to Notre Dame. It was an evening game. I watched just the opening, and as the opening began, I, the, the commentator said something to the effect of, look, I know it's just a football game. I know there are other bigger things in the world, but it just feels so good to see us people in the stands and a student body and players giving high fives. He said, this is a good thing. And I, I, all aside from the score at the end of the game, I, I, I agree, it was a good thing. As we start this new year, as full residents of this space, we're, our sermon series is just that. We're going to be looking at good things. Good things that you and I have uh, through our faith in Christ, good things about God and his son Jesus. I want us to be reminded and encouraged of the good things uh, that are ours through Christ. Maybe good things that you and I have, haven't turned our attention to in uh, quite some time. And the passage that we'll be in is First and Second Timothy. It's a great letter for thinking about good things because the word good occurs about 25 times in these two little letters. Good creation, God's good creation. Uh, the Christian faith is based on a good saying. We're made for good works. And this morning we're going to look at something, uh, another uh, benefit of our faith, and that is a good conscience. You see that at the end of our passage, chapter 1, verse 19, as the Apostle Paul writes to the younger Timothy, he says, holding your faith and what? A good conscience. Christian faith and good conscience go hand in hand, and that's what I want to think about this morning. First of all, what's a conscience? What's a good conscience? So let's define the term and ask how our faith allows for us to have a good conscience. So what's your conscience? Everyone knows what a conscience is. It's a little bit of your moral rudder, right? So Jiminy Cricket tells Pinocchio, let your conscience be your guide, right? What he's telling Pinocchio is let the, your inner sense of right and wrong be your guide. So you can have, that's what your conscience does. Uh, and everyone has a conscience, that conscience because there's such a thing as a good conscience, it just suggests that there's also such a thing as a bad conscience, right? So a good conscience leads Pinocchio to the right choices, a bad conscience leads Pinocchio to the wrong choices. Further, you could have a conscience that's too, uh, that's kind of dull. Uh, we often hear a critique of we've lost our conscience, right? We've forgotten how to blush. And you hear that, con that uh, maybe that cultural critique. What does that mean? It means simply that we, our, our sense of right and wrong has just been dulled. And actually, there's also another problem that you could have is your conscience is in uh, uh, overdrive. I was going to say hyperdrive, which sounds like a Star Trek term, uh, overdrive uh, conscience, which means that your conscience is too sensitive. And I, that's actually the problem of this uh, that First Timothy addresses. So Timothy is a younger uh, pastor. Uh, Paul is the older mentor, and uh, timid, uh, Timothy is young, he's timid, and he's probably overly scrupulous. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, you need not turn there, but the Apostle Paul uses a phrase that says, their consciences are seared. Now what's a, what do you do when you burn your finger? I was making BLTs last night, there are a few meals I make for the family, BLT is one of them, and I burned my finger. Uh, taking the bacon out of the oven. And when, you're when you burn your finger, everything, ow, everything, every, everything hurts. You're, you're overly sensitized, right? And the critique of, of the young, or the correction here, your conscience is seared, and what happens is that you forbid everything. You're, you, you, you abstain from meat, you abstain from marriage. Your conscience is in overdrive. So you're, you, things that you are really okay, your conscience is too troubled. 
That's kind of interesting because if you think of Christians, you think they're the guys with sort of the strict conscience. Apparently, our conscience can be too strict. So that's what a conscience does. It's sort of your rudder in the, in the back of the ship saying, eh, this is where I should go, this is where I should not go. But that's not all a conscience. When we use the phrase conscience, we're not only talking about the conscience as a rudder guiding your future decisions. We also use conscience as a sort of a rear, rear view mirror looking to the past. So someone may say, uh, you know, I have a clean conscience. That's another way we use the word conscience. And what they mean is, as I look back at my past actions, I, I weigh them and I think, yeah, I did the right thing. So it's sort of the, the judge, the balance, uh, the, the scales measuring your past actions. John Stott was a uh, famous Anglican scholar, world traveler, uh, had a profound ministry, and he had a gift. And it's a gift that I envy. His gift was that he could fall asleep and take a nap at moment's notice. Further, he would sleep soundly through every night. And I have to say, boy, I, I, I envy that. He, he, was a, he was a bachelor, so maybe he didn't have, you know, the kids running around, but he, he could sleep. And he was asked, what, what's your secret? How do you sleep? And he responded to this uh, young questioner. He said, a clear conscience, my boy, a clear conscience. And what he meant was simply that he was untroubled by the past. And that's what a good conscience is. It's a good guide, and then it's a clear assessment of your past. Unless we think that this is just some sort of like extra bonus, a nice to have, I want us just to consider how important, a, it's like a, the, the football fans, right? You don't realize how important or how good that is until you do without it. And over the past couple of months, I've had a, a handful of days that I just wish I could press replay. And I bet you have those days as well. You get to the end, nothing scandalous, but uh, you get to the end and think, man, I just wish I could press rewind for the 24 hours and just do that whole thing again, because I would do a heck of a lot better. And when, when I have those days and you have those days, the, the problem with a guilty conscience or a troubled conscience is A, you don't sleep. B, you're, you're ineffective because uh, you know, you're, you're kind of consumed with the past and replaying the past events. You kind of lose your confidence. You think, gosh, I, I messed up here. I'm going to mess up again. You keep on second guessing yourself. Uh, a good conscience is not just an added bonus. It's something that without it, your life will be robbed of joy. Like this is a really important benefit that we have of our faith in Christ. So how do you get it? Let's look at our passage. Uh, again, this is a letter to, from the Apostle Paul to his younger protege, Timothy. And it's a little bit of an autobiography. Right? The Apostle Paul tells, him a, tells us a little bit about himself. And as he does, I think he gives us three Hence, three suggestions of how you and I can have what is described here, that being a good conscience. Look with me. He describes, and so the first, you can follow along with some sermon notes in the back of your service leaflet. And the first step I think we have to developing or benefiting from a good conscience is to have an honest self-assessment. So a good conscience starts with an honest self-assessment. So the Apostle Paul describes himself in verse 13. Some pretty severe terms, right? Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and that's, he was. Uh, the Apostle Paul oversaw the martyrdom of the first of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the early church. He did some really bad things. 
uh, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And then look at the end of verse 15. He has a trustworthy saying, which we'll turn to. And then he describes himself as uh, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The foremost of sinners. The word in Greek is the protos, the prototype. Paul's saying, I, I'm the prototypical sinner. You want to know, know what a sinner looks like? Look at me. And how do you react to that? I mean, is, do you hear that and think, well, that's just something that Christians say. Right? Christians are those type of people like always beating themselves up. You know, the flagellants walking to the, the medieval towns, kind of whipping their backs. I'm so lousy. I'm a terrible, horrible sinner. Is that what's going on here? Is this just hyperbole? Is this a, a preacher's ploy? I'm so terrible. No, I don't think so. I, matter of fact, I think not only could the Apostle Paul say, I am the prototypical sinner, I think that's something that everyone can be, should be able to say. I, you want to know what a sinner looks like? Look at me. Look at you. You, we, we're the prototypical sinners. Does that mean that you've done the worst things possible? No. No, it, does, it doesn't mean that we, we've done the most heinous crimes, the most heinous acts possible. But what it does mean is that there's, there's no fundamental difference between, between me and, and the people who did. In other words, like I heard a, a famous preacher, more famous than me, so he could get away with it. He said, you know, we don't have any like Stalins or any of the bad guys in here, but it's not for lack of talent. <laughs> and if we start thinking there's some fundamental difference between those bad guys over there, or those bad guys out there, and me, then we're just kind of kidding ourselves. Like, why am I a good person? I, I, my marriage is intact. You know, like the kids in Lake Wobegon, my kids are above average. Um, uh, you know, I try to, I, I don't think of myself as the, the foremost of sinners. Why? I had two parents that loved me. You know, I grew up in a good house. I, you know, all the things that I have that have helped me be a good person, and therefore, but the great, there but for the grace of God go I. You too. Are you the foremost of sinners? Well, that doesn't mean you've done the most heinous of things, but it does mean put in a different situation. Don't put it past yourself. One of my uh, mentors, uh, or, or a church leader that I really respect, had a had a conversation with him and about a difficult subject of some years ago and they were involved and they were kind of weighing their actions and weighing the, what they did. And I was so struck uh, because this, a person that I really admire said, gosh, as I look back on how I acted and what I did, he said something to the effect of, you know, I think I did the right thing. I, I, I think I acted with pure motives, but gosh, I." You sort of heard this sort of self-doubt, this willingness to take a hard look at himself. And his openness, his lack of defensiveness were so natural. It made me admire him even more. He had taken an honest assessment of himself and his result was a troubled spirit, a troubled conscience. That's what the Bible says. It says uh, King David, one of the most famous psalms ever, one of the most notorious sins ever. David committed adultery and killed a man to hide his sin. At the end of his ordeal, as he's caught and called to, called to account, he writes, a broken and contrite heart, O God, 
not heart but conscience, but the same phrase, same implications, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. The first step to a troubled good conscience is a, is a troubled conscience. To take an honest look at yourself. To think, I haven't measured up to my own conscience, to my own internal rudder of what's right or what's wrong, much less God's, uh, the, the, the proper assessment of what's right and wrong. So, first step. First step to a good conscience is a troubled conscience. Next step, what do you do? So I haven't helped us anymore. You and I are still lying in our bed, replaying our past or whatever we do with a troubled conscience. What do you do? So what do we naturally do with a troubled conscience? Let me tell you what I do, what you probably do after you have one of those days where you just want to press replay. First, what we do is we, uh, we get defensive. We think, I was right. I did the right thing, and that person was wrong. And they so we go on, we, get, we, we fight, all right? Step number one. Step number two, flight. We start, we shift from defensiveness to sort of beating ourselves up, right? Again, the flagellants whipping themselves. What, I can't believe I did that. Then we shift to uh, making promises. I am never going to do that, whatever it was, again. And it, you know, if we're on our A game, maybe we make restitution. We, we go to the people that we've wronged and say, hey, I, you know, that was wrong. I, I'm really sorry, I'm gonna do better next time. And that is good. All those things I've described, aside from maybe the, the self-flagellation and, and uh, the, those first two steps, that's all good to do. Striving to do better. Uh, making amends where you can. Amen, go for it. But the only problem is you'll never get a clear conscience that way. And here's why. Uh, it was a, there was a bishop, uh, Bishop Allison, he's from the South, had this great Southern accent. And he said, the problem with trying to rectify your own conscience is there's always more snakes in the water than you can beat them with a stick. What he meant is you're going to fix one problem, sure. Yeah, you're going to take care of that one day, that one 24-hour period that you, you, know, you, you wish you could redo. And then get ready because as soon as you take care of that, there's going to be another snake in the water that's going to rear its ugly head. There's always more snakes in the water. You can't beat them back. And left to your own efforts, vows to do better, uh, making amends, good. It's just that you'll never get a clear conscience that way. Note in our passage, Christian faith is always intertwined with a good conscience, holding faith and a good conscience at the end, at the beginning of verse 19. So what's the Christian secret to a good conscience? It's not in the severity of penance. It's not in your uh, vows to do better the next time. Here it is. The Christian secret to a good conscience is found by the full acceptance of the trustworthy saying, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the Christian secret to a good conscience. Think of what a conscience does. Think of what I just described, the conscience. A conscience is your rudder moving forward. A conscience is your guide. It says, do this, don't do this. This is good, this is bad. A good conscience is a positive assessment of the past. Jesus answers both, he fulfills both those needs. And let me explain how in our baptism service, we ask uh, candidates the following question, something, a question along these lines. Will you seek to follow Jesus? And when you fall, will you repent and return to him? And the answer is, of course, I will, the Lord being my helper, right? Will you seek to follow Jesus? 
a good conscience is your rudder. A good conscience is a conscience that's been informed by Christ and his life and his word. We don't listen to Jiminy Cricket. We don't listen to the cultural prevailing winds. We don't even listen to that still small voice, however compelling it may be. The, the primary rudder in your life is the life of Christ, the revealed word of God, and that revealed word of God impressed upon you by his Holy Spirit. That is the conscience of the Christian. The conscience of the Christian, the conscience guides us moving forward, but a good conscience also accounts for the past. And if the life of Christ is the Christian's rudder on the front end, then the death of Christ is the Christian's eraser on the back. The trustworthy saying is Christ died to save sinners. And that's the secret to a good conscience. Not your efforts, not your penance, but the good conscience that the Christian has comes from this transaction that we believe happens when we accept that full and trustworthy saying that somehow in God's economy, my debt, my sin is transferred to him and he accounts for that on the cross. You know, I think most of us might, I think when I, this is the mission statement that Jesus Christ, that, that Paul gives for Christ's mission. It's the same mission statement we hear in, in, uh, throughout the Bible that Jesus came to save sinners. And I think what we, that's what we read, but what we hear is Jesus came to make us better. Jesus came to make good people better kind of fill up that moral gas tank. Here's where you are, here's where your conscience says you need to be, but come to church and try to do better. And just, that's, moral improvement, however noble it is, is not the primary goal of your faith. It's not the primary message of Christ. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And the message of the church and the message of Christ is take a look at yourself. Do you think a leopard's gonna change its spots? Do you think you'll be anything other than you are? Take a look at yourself and then take a look to Jesus. And that's the secret to a clear conscience. He is the guide in the rudder in the back. He is a racer for the, or he is the rudder moving forward and the racer in the past. So I wanna make one final observation. That's really just the result of a, a good conscience. And I'm going to turn back to this passage because not only does the Apostle Paul say, I'm the worst of sinners, he also says something very interesting. He says, uh, look at verse, oh, verse 16. He says, I am the worst, but also I receive mercy that in me as a foremost Jesus Christ might display as displays perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. The word I'm drawing on, I want to draw our attention to is the word example. So Paul said, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the example of the worst of sinners, and now I'm the example for all the saints. Anyone who wants to know what to believe, I'm the example. Do you see that at the end of verse 16? I am the example. I'm the worst, and I'm the best. And here's what happens when you and I have a free conscience, a guilt-free conscience, is that you and I are, are finally free. 
We're unhindered from our past. You're free to be who you are. You're free to be who God has made you to be. You're free to stop replaying the event. You're free to stop second-guessing yourself. And Paul had a lot to second-guess himself about. There was a, a lot about his life that could cause him to second-guess. Again, he was the martyr of the first Christian. He let that go in the past. And he went on to write the majority of the New Testament. I guess as I think about this, I think I'm not so bad, I'm not so good. That's where most of us operate. But the Apostle Paul and the example that he says, I'm the worst, and because I'm the worst, I'm also the best. I'm free to be who God has made me to be. I started with a... Uh, Started with a sports analogy, I'm gonna close with a sports analogy. Uh, athletes are told to have a short memory. Right? So if a quarterback gets up and he throws a pick, uh, interception, uh, he has to forget about that for the next play. Right? He has to have a, a, a short memory. He has to let the past uh, remain in the past. And I think that's something for you and me to consider. A good conscience. Uh, comes from trusting in Christ's death for whatever is in the past. That doesn't mean that we'll have to make some restitution for the people we may have offended. But it allows you and me to turn all of our attention to the present moment. So, as we close, let me summarize. If you don't know you're the worst, then you'll never know the best that you can be. But if you do know that you, like Paul, like everyone else in this room, that you are the prototypical sinner, the foremost of sinners. And if you, like Paul and so many others, have accepted that trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, then you can have the benefit of what we see here, a good conscience and the freedom to be exactly who God has made you to be. Please rise.